Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the Prime Movers podcast with your host, Jason Prescott. Today, I have the pleasure of bringing you my father, Sid Prescott, and discussing his extensive diving career from the 1970s through till now. Sid Prescott began his commercial diving career in 1973, diving mixed gas with Oceaneering International in Southeast Asia. He continued his career with the iconic Taylor Diving and, diving and Salvage Company in the Gulf of Mexico, where he worked on Brown and Root's fleet of offshore pipe lay and marine construction vessels. Sid was part of the Taylor Diving and Salvage Company team that pioneered the use of deep saturation diving and hyperbaric welding, working primarily in the North Sea, where he amassed a cumulative total of over a year in saturation. Sid was one of the six divers selected by McDermott International's diving division to participate in a record 1,200 feet saturation dive, proving the human equipment capability to accomplish work at that extreme depth for the Norwegian government. The success of this dive enabled the Norwegian government to move forward with the installation of a 36-inch pipeline across the Norwegian trench, utilizing American divers and American companies. From this, Norway became a wealthy nation with access to the North Sea oil reserves. Sid recently acted as underwater welding and diving supervisor and a repair to a major offshore installation in the South China Sea. Sid holds a UK Bell Saturation Certification, Det Norsk Veritas Certification, Hyperbaric Welding Certification, Ultrasonic and Radiography Inspection Certifications, DCBC Diving Supervisor Certification, and also holds a United States Coast Guard Master's License, as well as a private pilot's license. Hope you enjoy the chat I have with my father, Sid Prescott, today, and thank you for tuning in. Well, Dad, how you doing? I'm doing well. Very well. How are you? I'm good. Glad to have you on here for a chat about your very extensive diving career. We're looking at over, shoot, coming up on what now? Since the 70s. 40 years? Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a while. And first of all, thank you. It's an honor to be selected to be on your Prime Movers podcast. I appreciate thank that. I'm <laughs> so. uh, very, very honored to have you on here been wanting to chat to you for a while about all this i think a lot of people will be interested in everything you've accomplished through your extensive career in diving and now in the school that you started that's pretty much the premier school in the world yep for training commercial divers yep six years we've gone from uh, property that had nothing but dirt on it to today six years later we're acknowledged as the premier tip of the spear in the commercial diver training facility in the world we're training a lot of veterans primarily veterans you know yep everybody's going to work exciting jobs high-paying jobs world travel a lot of adventure a lot of fun yep make a lot of money well i'll go i want to visit that with you uh towards the end of our chat but the moment i want to just get started what brought you into commercial diving um what inspired you to decide i want to go and become a commercial diver what led you into that that path that you've been on you know well it's an interesting story and i'm probably going to tell you some things that you don't know okay hope so and the way this all got started and uh i didn't set out to be a commercial diver i'd never even i had never even heard the word or term commercial diving and uh one of my high school buddies uh happened we happened to be talking one day and he mentioned to me about a cousin he had in Louisiana who was a commercial diver. He worked six months out of the year and drove a brand new Corvette. <laughs> yeah. That got my attention. 
I don't understand how it won it, yeah. And uh, I started asking him some questions, and at that particular time, I needed I needed some money because what I wanted to do, I wanted to go race Daytona. Uh, that was my passion. And actually, NASCAR. Yes, absolutely. Still Stock car today. racing. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I was in high school, at any given time, you could find me up outside of a smoky unix shop at night listening to him run racing engines on the dyno or or at the you know at the track at daytona you know those were the days the heyday of nascar when they had drivers like kale yarbrough david pearson richard petty all those guys bobby and donnie allison yeah and uh, that was absolutely what i intended to do and be part of but i needed money and a lot of it to finance it, to get into it. Right. And I found out about this commercial diving, so uh, took off to California, to Los Angeles. And you grew, so before we go into that, you were born in Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. Yep. 1950. Yep. October 9th. Yep. Uh, makes you the ripe age of 71. That's what they tell me. Years young. I'm sticking on 38 and a half. Well, you look 21, so we'll go with 21. <laughs> anyway, you uh, went to school growing up uh, New Smyrna. You graduated from the same high school as I did. Yep. Which is pretty New cool. Smyrna high. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, now, how old were you when you got into the race and you started hanging around the track? Well, I was in racing when I was in high school. I built, uh, <clears throat> had a 55 Chevy and... Uh, Ran it on a drag strip down here at Bithlow, and then hmm. uh, when they opened up the half-mile asphalt track out here at New Smyrna, I converted it over to a asphalt stock car. Yeah. Don't know how I did it. Had absolutely no money. I'm out there running with Smokey Unix sign and all these guys that are really, really well-financed, and to this day, I can't tell you how I even got that car on the track. That's pretty damn cool. So. Okay, so now back to what you're saying. You went to... Drove, decided to drive over to drive across the country to LA mm -hmm. to pursue yep. getting into diving. Another thing that I don't know, I couldn't tell you right now how I did that. Um, it's just one of those things that you uh, have have a goal in your mind and, and you set out and you go do it. And uh, drove across country, uh, wound up at Commercial Diving Center mm -hmm. in Long Beach, California, which back at the time, that was the place, that was the place to go for commercial diver training. Mm. That school was owned by Oceaneering International, and uh, they used it as a source of entry-level people for their worldwide diving operations. No qualifications prior. You just walked well, in the door. I had already done it? some little scuba little certified bit. or uh, no, scuba, no, none of that. No, no scuba certifications or anything. Ah, like okay, that. no prior like, requisites that were required to enter that no, school. Yeah, no. gotcha. And didn't didn't know it at the time. There were thirty eight other people in my class, which was D forty two. Yeah, D forty two being what the class that number? That was the designation of the, our class. Okay, of that year. And uh, they didn't tell us, but out of those 38 people on the day we graduated, Oceaneering selected two people out of my class for a one-year contract in Singapore. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the two people out of 38. Yeah, 38. They got, this, got, the, uh, got the job. One-year contract huh. in Singapore. That's pretty damn good. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, top of the class, I was, two I people. I was very happy. Yeah. Singapore. Yeah. So how long now 
was that schooling, is it similar to what your, your school is now, same time frame of, of getting to that certification level where you can go on a job the, commerci- uh, and that, work that, commercially? That course there was approximately three months. Yeah. Uh, looking back on it, the training back in the day, they did a, they did a good job, but what we're doing today far, far exceeds. What year was this now? That was 1972, 73. Okay. A few days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Come out of there, <clears throat> hightailed you on a plane to Singapore. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Wound up in How's Singapore. That? And, uh, you know, remember back in the day there, everybody had pretty long hair. It was pretty common. <laughs> yeah. Mine was down probably collar length. And I remember going through customs, getting into Singapore, and the guy at the customs coming off the plane took my passport and set it aside, and he says, you go sit down over there. Yeah? But you want you to get a haircut? <clears throat> well, I didn't know it. They deboarded the whole plane, 747, goes through customs, and he motions me to come over to him. He says, we deny you entry into Singapore until you get a haircut. Yeah, right. Wow. So there happened to be a, a, a young lady on the plane that saw what was <laughs> going on, and and she came over and asked me what was going on. She, I said, they, well, they're not going to let me in Singapore until I get a haircut. She yeah. says, well, I have a pair of scissors. I says, well, get them out. Really? So I got a haircut right there in the in the terminal in Singapore, and they allowed me to enter Singapore. Gee, that's cool. So, uh, Oh, that's not cool that you weren't able to get in there, but that's a pretty cool story. Yeah. That yeah. She just happened to have a pair of scissors on her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't get them through <laughs> security nowadays. Similar <laughs> Less than a check baggage, me. maybe. Up in Talladega, I went to the first race at Talladega to help out a guy, an independent guy that was running up there, and I'd been helping him at the races in Daytona in the pits. So, uh, yeah. um, Bill Gazaway, ex-Marine drill sergeant, was the technical inspector for NASCAR back there, and I was going out of the gate from the garage area to get something, and he grabbed me by the shirt collar and pulled me back. He says, where are you going, boy? I said, I'm going out to get whatever part I was after, and he said, no, no, no. He says... You're going down to Main Street in Talladega. There's a, a barber shop down there. He says, you go down there and get your haircut, and I'll allow you back in the garage area. <laughs> Shit. So I did. All right, so Singapore, first job. First Where job. Where were we? Where were you? Yeah, first job. They, did the uh, other person graduated your, your class there that got the job? Was he or she with, they with you, person? Well, uh, uh, no, we flew over there. So they went, that person went to another different job. Right. Okay, so you're picking on your own to go to Singapore for a job. Right. Got a one-year contract. Right. Um, uh, they provided us with, a, had a very nice uh, apartment in Singapore, hmm. and I was assigned to a drill ship called the uh, Investigator. Yeah. It happened to be owned by Zapata Oil Company, who was owned by George Bush Sr. Oh, I had no idea back in that day wow. any of this, but I was assigned as, uh, as a diver aboard this drill ship, yeah, we were working uh, basically about the tenth parallel in the uh, in the Gulf of Thailand between uh, Thailand and, and Vietnam. Uh, what was the job? In, what they, the job they were drilling. Drilling. They were drilling. Uh, actually engaged, and they had sputted in a well, and they were for, involved in drilling. Yeah, for for oil. Okay. Right. And this is a, a months long project to, yeah. to for this drilling to occur. I was working two weeks on. 14 days on and seven days off back in Singapore. Huh. And the water depth was uh, 250 feet to the bottom. Crystal clear water. Wow. Crystal clear water. All the way from the 
surface down. Yep, yep. Wow. At night, when we were diving at night, you know, the uh, <clears throat> you can look down the guide wires going to the wellhead, and, and we have cameras with lights on them on the bottom, and actually when you leave surface, as soon as you leave surface, you look down, you can actually see. Seafloor. See the lights down there on the wellhead. No way. Of course, being a, a new diver, no one experienced. My very first dive was probably 2 o'clock in the morning, pitch black. I'm riding the uh, stage down, and I haven't learned yet to stop the What's stage. A sta- what's a stage? It's just a little metal cage you get in. It's on a winch, and it lowers you down, right? An elevator that goes only down to well, the seafloor. Sea sea uh, yeah, I got you. Sorry. Because the decompression times are very long, and it gives right. you something to uh, stand in while you're doing. You may be decompressing at various depths for a couple hours. Explain, if you would, for anybody that's tuning into this, um, what goes on at certain depths because you can't breathe what we breathe here on the surface of the earth well, when very, you're underwater because you're under pressure. Very basically, you're going to breathe compressed air, which is what we're breathing right here, down to about 200 feet. Okay, so the same air that you have on, we're breathing yeah. you and me right now, yeah. up to 200 foot. Yeah. Now, you're certainly not going to breathe it beyond 250 to 300 feet because the oxygen percentage, which is 21% in air, is there's like a compounding effect created by the pressure. It's called partial pressure. Mm -hmm. And that oxygen percentage will actually kill you if you breathe it in too deep of water. You think Mm. certainly beyond 300 feet, you'll have O2 toxicity. So so the deeper deeper dives, if you're going to be working uh, beyond, you know, for working purposes, we limit uh, working dives on air from anywhere from 165 to, to about 220. Anything beyond that, you're going to be on a mixed gas, which is helium and oxygen, and that varies by percentage. You, you couldn't breathe as, as a obviously can't breathe straight helium, could you? Without without an oxygen mix well, put in, we'll that? get into uh, uh, various... some of the very deep dives that we did later, where the uh, percentage of oxygen in the little. mixture was it was for all intents and purposes right on the edge of a hundred percent. Wow. Yeah, but, uh, but basically, back to the depths and the breathing gases and mixtures, you know, for a rule of thumb, zero to 200 feet on air, anything beyond that is going to be on mixed gas, helium and oxygen, mm-hmm. and anything beyond 300 feet is going to be a saturation dive, where actually the divers are putting in into a uh, steel chamber, yeah. living chamber, pressurized to whatever the depth of the seabed is they're working at, on helium gas, and and then you just stay in there and do, because there's no decompression until the end of the job. Wow. And you put three teams of divers, usually two per team, two, four, six guys in there. That way you can do three eight-hour bell runs in a 20-hour, four-hour period, working around the clock. It doesn't matter if it's day, night, or anything. The only limiting factor is weather. Right. You know, if your weather gets up uh, to a sea state a where it issue. becomes... Unsafe, unsafe to be diving, then we shut down diving operations until the weather subsides to a safe level where we can continue diving. I'll touch on that with you because you got a pretty hell of a story uh, for when the weather goes bad, of and you experienced it firsthand of what can happen. Um, you want to any if you want to touch on that, it's a pretty damn interesting story. And now that I've just brought it up, well, there's. You got a couple of them. them. (laughs) If you want to, that one you tell, if you could tell that one, that'd be be excellent where you told me, and it wasn't too long ago over Christmas, actually, you 
told me this story. I don't think I'd heard heard it before. Where you were out there on the umbilical, umbilical is what your lifeline to the bell. Yeah. Okay. That's what you call it. Your your hose that goes to the bell right. that controls all your in, intake of what you're breathing. Mm-hmm. Hot water going to the soup. Yeah. All right. You have hot water. So because you're get, breathing helium gas, yeah. and the helium gas conducts uh, heat uh, like copper conducts electricity. Mm-hmm. So your breathing gas is coming from the surface down an umbilical to the bell, through the piping on the bell, and then it comes uh, in the water through your umbilical to you. So by the, certainly by the time it reaches you and you breathe it, that gas is at ambient water temperature, which in the North Sea is right above freezing. Right. So you're breathing a very, very cold helium gas that every breath you take, wow. every, ex, every time you exhale, you're actually losing core body heat. So the only way to conduct work uh, under these conditions is have hot water. Mm-hmm. And they have um, Dick Long out in California has, has DUI. He manufactures these hot water suits, which are basically a loose-fitting rubber suit. You've got a manifold where you plug your hot water in on the side and you've got an on-off and a, and a control here. And the hot water is pumped down to the divers from the surface. Mm-hmm. And it's as long as you've got hot water coming to you, it's very, very, very comfortable. Right. And if the hot water machine goes down, the minute you detect a little decrease in that water temperature, you're stopping whatever you're doing and heading back to the bell. Right. Because if you totally lose hot water, uh, you've only got, you know, minutes to get back to the bell. Or you're going to go into hypothermia. Yeah. Now, we try to do a, a, a job in the South China Sea, 120 foot deep, white sand bottom, very warm water. Yeah. And they didn't think it was necessary to air freight all the hot water equipment over there for us. Uh-huh. And we started working on this job and found out very, very quickly that this is not going to work. You know, we can't, we can't, even in very warm water, Water, remember, because we're breathing gas, it was probably maybe 85, 86 degrees. That's pretty warm. Yeah. But that differential between that temperature and your normal human body temperature, you have a differential in temperature and you're continually losing body, body heat. Yeah. I know that seeing a lot of uh, people that have scuba dive and wearing wetsuits, you think in the the summertime, Mm -hmm. you do lose your core body temperature, Mm -hmm. even in a, a warm Warm, warm water. Yeah. So that's yeah, interesting there. Um, so I was fortunate in my career to, I, I uh, didn't stay a very long time over in uh, working out of Singapore because I learned very quickly uh, what the, the wages were and weren't and, mm-hmm. and that it was very much improved uh, pay back in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So uh, I, uh, I left Singapore uh, came back to the United States and wound up down in the Gulf of Mexico looking for a job, you know, south of Louisiana down in that area because the Gulf of Mexico back at that time was in a building mm-hmm. stage. It was it was like the wild, wild west. Um, and a tremendous amount of work going on in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, I think the good Lord was looking after me because I wound up at the door of Taylor Diving and Salvage in New Orleans yeah, and I had already at that time had a had a very large dive company back then. Yes, very very renowned, large and yes. Yeah, Taylor diving and salvage. So I, w- I wound up at at Taylor looking looking for a job. Applied as a diver and interviewed. I already had a fair bit of diving experience, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I remember uh, the operations manager told me he said we'd like to have you come to work for us, but we're going to hire you as a diver. 
He said, if you want to work for us, you're going to have to break back as a tender and hmm. go through the breakout period. What's a tender? Uh, a tender is job a, description. Is an entry level person. You know, the diver's <clears throat> yeah. tender. In the old school way, you have your diver and your ten. The tender is basically the diver's butler. <laughs> you know, divers are the bees knees. They're the, the well, you don't get messed with. They're doing the work. Is that right? Where divers you're... are prima donnas. And and gotcha. uh, you know, with Taylor, Taylor had a system. It was an old school system. I loved it because they made big prima donnas out of us. Taken care of. Once you broke out right. as a diver with Taylor Diving and Salvage, your job was. You earned your. You got your stripes, and you were you're ready to go, and you were you were an asset to their company. Well, t- well Taylor had a. As Taylor was an iconic cream of the company. crop. Taylor yeah. was had the reputation as the best of the best, yeah. and they truly were. We had the best equipment. We had the best people. We had the best of everything. It was a great company. They took care of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fortunate to, to wind up with Taylor. Taylor Diving and Salvage right here. This is an old sticker. Ain't that Pops? Mm-hmm. That's, That's a company a right there. Item. Collector's item. But yeah. Yeah, I've, hold, I've held on to that for a while. But throughout the industry back in those days, it, it was a wild, wild west type of scenario. Anything went. There were a lot of companies. There were... Um, there were a lot of accidents that were occurring. Unsafe conditions that well, they put you out in. People pushing the envelope. Yeah. Not very well... Uh, trained people they were pushing the envelope back in the, back at that time in a lot of ways and uh, if you look back on it there were a lot of accidents mm-hmm. a lot man and uh, luckily with Taylor we had a culture of safety and we had very good people and we tried to do things right mm-hmm. and uh, you know people in the industry uh, it, Taylor Diving and Salvage just has a re- had a reputation of being professionalism way, way above anybody else yeah. anybody else in the world another caliber ahead and even above. today taylor has been out of business for over 20 years every october we still have a taylor diving reunion in Vanderbilt, louisiana wow across the lake from new orleans <laughs> so it's that's not said by many companies ever years it's on 20 more than well more than 20 years now after taylor closed the doors we still have a there was that com- camaraderie a brotherhood of guys that work for that you still in talk is still in contact with uh with some of them yeah sure. yeah, yeah some of them there's getting to be less and there's less some unfortunate of news with some of them as well of conditions that they were affected by from the diving is that correct well, what uh, happened what was, happened to their bodies and everything because that's that's a you're scratching the surface back then and the, those years weren't you with this diving underwater compression well, they discovered dive, oil in the north saturation i discovered the north sea oil and the North Sea is is uh, averages uh, 250 feet and deeper, mm-hmm. so it was all saturation diving. And we went over there and started all of that work. And uh, uh, the U.S. Navy had done uh, a little bit of saturation dives, very very just little not bit. to cut, not to get interrupt you. Saturation diving again for those who don't know what that is is when you're in another you're in another atmosphere. You're not now you're breathing. You're in compression. You're you're breathing a different. You can visualize the space station. Yeah. That's orbiting the Earth and the astronauts in there. Right. It's very similar to that. You're just going underwater but rather than in space. It's very heavy steel chambers, mm-hmm. pressure chambers, that the divers are put in, and these stay on the surface. You go in there. You've got your bunks in there. You have uh, toilet facilities in there. Yep. You have a uh, a med lock where you can lock in and out whatever is needed, food, clothes whatever can be sent in and out but basically the divers are held under pressure mm-hmm. equal to the seabed 
where they're working at. Where they're going to be working. Right. Right. And then when you actually go to work, when you make a dive, you transfer from your living chamber through a little steel tunnel into the diving bell. Uh-huh. And then that's separated off. The diving bell is under the pressure of the seabed also. So you're lowered down. The bell is stopped about 20 foot off bottom. You equalize pressure internal in the, in the bell. Open your bottom hatch, and you've got the water right there. And if it's clear, you can look down about 20 foot, and you're going to see the bottom. How far from the bell can you, 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 how much hose is there, umbilical, for you to do your work? How far from the bell are you? What's the, the furthest be- from the bell, bell you can be at one time? Our bell umbilicals, um, generally speaking, were about 200, maybe 250 250 feet foot. Yeah. And you obviously want to slacken those. You ain't wanting them to be tight. Well, normally you're going to make right? a two-man bell with, run. Diver one, you get down there, open your bottom hatch, uh, and uh, diver one gets hatted up, get your hat on, plug your hot water in your suit, sit there and let your suit fill up with hot water for a second, and then you drop down out of the bell uh, and go over and do whatever whatever your work task is going to be. Yeah. And and that's going to last three to four hours. You're working three to four hours out of that bell. Yeah. And okay. then you're going to come back, change out with diver two, mm-hmm. and then he's going to go there and work his three or four hours. And then when he's done, he comes back, Pull your umbilical back up in the bell, close the bottom hatch, tail top side, press for a seal, like pressurize the bell internally. You get a seal on your bottom hatch, and then you're brought back up, locked back onto the living chamber where you transfer back in there, and you got your next two divers that are ready, and they transfer into the bell, and they go do, do their bell run. So weather permitting, permitting, you're going to do three bell runs, eight hours, and that's your 24-hour day. Unless the weather is now, <laughs> this being back in the seventies, late seventies, by the you know through the seventies when you, school you started was seventy two. What'd you have in there? A book? There's no Facebook. There's no Instagram. There's no Wi Fi when you had downtime. What'd you do? It was, read this read, read Moby Dick over and over again. I mean, what what are you doing? We did a lot of reading <laughs> because I can't believe it. I just yeah, as people got to relate to that because there's no relation nowadays with what. Well, when you come up after an eight-hour bell run, uh, first thing you're going to want is a shower. Right. You take a shower usually in the bell because that's the only place we had to take a shower in those early SAT systems. Yeah. And uh, the other two guys get in there, and they're gone. The bell's down for eight hours. So first thing you're going to want, they've got a, they've got food waiting on you, you know. They put that through the SAT chamber, right? Yeah. It's in a vacuum seal, so it doesn't interfere with the saturation, the atmosphere you're under. So well, the way it works, you know, as far as eating, uh, the ship you're working on has got a galley, you know, right. and they'll send us a menu in of whatever that is on their menu for that day, T-bone mm-hmm. steaks or whatever, you know, and you just check it off, whatever you want. And and then somebody outside will go down to the galley, prepare your tray of food, bring it back up, and then it's put into a, uh, a round medlock, put in there, hatches closed, and then they pressurize it, and on on the inside you open your hatch and you take it out are they putting that food in that atmosphere you're in yeah because what would happen if you ate that food and it stayed in the atmosphere they they, from from the you know i'm saying and it you ate it and it was in a pure ox like a air you're breathing on Mm -hmm. outside that sat chamber well it's helium inside you're living would you be affected through your eating that if it wasn't in a helium environment the entire time you're talking like donald duck yeah, you sound like you're, and, you're uh, sucked in a helium balloon. The deeper depth that you're Chipmunk. at, the more distorted this Donald Duck voice is. But 
it gets to the point after a few hours, once you go in saturation and they, 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 uh, they pressurize you with the helium gas and you have your voice change, <laughs> it, you become acclimated to it. Normal. It becomes yeah. normal. Yeah. Now I want to ask you what happens when, that's why I was asking the question about how long your umbilical is. It's about 200 foot. No, not really anymore. What happened now? You want to chat about that story where rough seas and she probably shouldn't have been diving that day, right? You come out of there. Well, and... on this particular incident that you're asking about, uh, we had just uh, completed a hyperbaric weld, which we had uh, we had some very very advanced equipment. We were doing things that nobody in the world was doing, uh, welding these pipelines on the seabed in a dry atmosphere, uh, X-ray in the weld after we were done, ultrasonic testing the weld after we were finished with it. Mm-hmm. Zero defects. Mm-hmm. Zero defects. No yeah, porosity. Right. Wow. Um, no undercut, no lack of fusion, a hundred percent perfect weld is what they required. Damn. And uh, this is yeah. being done at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. something. Yeah, Testament it, it to was, it was really your skill good, and it was really some good work. Uh, it sounds uh, like it. Yeah. So we had we had just completed a um, a hyperbaric well in our in our whole our habitat, all our equipment was still down on the bottom. And we had been shut down for weather for a few days. This was in the North Sea. And uh, unfortunately, me and my bell partner were under the gun up for the next bell run when the weather got better for us to go back to to work because we go in a rotation, right? Three teams, right? And uh, so we knew the weather. You can sense the, the motion of the vessel when you're in there. And we knew that weather was getting better they hadn't come on the radio and told us yet but we were anticipating going back to work and uh sure enough supervisor comes over and says hey we're uh we've got a little weather window here for about six or eight hours <laughs> and then it's going to pick back up again but we want to do a bell run just to put a anode zinc anode clamp around the pipeline on around a seal. the well hold hold sealed yeah yeah so i was up for the next bell run mm-hmm. and uh we discussed what we're going to do and said, okay, sure. We go down there and do it. Should only take us a couple hours. We'll be done. Right. I loved it because I'll make a quick two hour bell run and then, and then I'll, I'm not under the gun anymore. Yeah. Time to chill out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so we get, we get in the bell, go down and I was uh, first diver out of the bell. And I remember, I remember when I opened the bottom hatch and looked down, I could see the pipeline and that's unusual because usually our bell uh, came down, positioned about 50 or 60 feet off to the side of the pipeline. Yeah. But I remember noticing the pipeline was directly under the bell. So I drop out of the bell and I could see, you know, the pipeline going into the submarine pipe alignment rig, which is 20 feet high, 20 feet wide, 60 feet long. It's got the hyperbaric uh, welding habitat in the center. Mm -hmm. So I knew what I had to do was go in there and they were going to lower this, this clamp down from the surface. It was at night. And uh, the most direct, easy path is to go follow the pipeline straight into this framework underneath there and then direct them to drop it down from the surface, right? Yeah. So for some reason, it's one of those things in life that happens. I didn't take the direct path, easiest path. I went to the left, around to the side, and then went in halfway. I don't know why I did that. Shit. Because that was the long way. Yeah. And uh, 
anyway, the smart, well, I'm in there, smart way. I've gone in there, yeah. and I'm involved in all this pipe work and the habitat, and I'm looking up, and I can see, just like this light here, I can see the clamp coming down, and I'm talking to them, you know, lowering it down, come on down, come on down, and all of a sudden, it started, around me, it started getting lighter and lighter and lighter. Remember, this was at night, and I look over to my right, and the bell has lights on the outside of it. It was the lights from the bell because it was getting closer. Damn. And remember, there was still a big sea running topside, you know. Oh, yeah. And the bell was going up about six or eight or ten feet and coming down. And next time it went up, it's getting closer to me. My umbilical's coming out the bottom. And our bells at that time had a piece of steel that thick around the bottom as a counterweight. Right. And it came down, boom, hit the top of the spar unit right above me. Just missed my umbilical. And I'm just standing there. That would have snapped, snipped it in half. I'd like a, yeah. And then you on, and then where do you go from there? You got spare well, tanks on I knew on instantly you? what was happening. I knew instantly what was happening. The barge up top side was moving because the anchors were dragging in these big seas that were still running. Yeah. And the barge was actually moving. Uh -huh. So consequently, the bell is suspended from the barge. It's moving with it, right? <sighs> Just so happened we had a brand new supervisor right out of the Navy on shift. Yeah. And not to knock him, but he didn't have a clue what was going on. I'm telling you. It was him. just a very, very silly call, wasn't it? Unsafe. Well, it's just one of those things. Happens, but anyway, but yeah. the bell bounced three times, missed my umbilical, luckily, all three times. And, uh, you know, every time it would hit the top of the spar, it would fall over at about a 45 degree angle because uh -huh. it would put slack in the cable. Right. Remember, I got my bell partner, who was Walt Zawinski. What's he doing there. in there? He's probably losing his mind. <laughs> so anyway, I want to be, I it be in there. the third time, and it, <laughs> took, it took off in that direction, and my umbilical came tight, and I was just off to the races. It was dragging me across the bottom. Jeez. And what do you think in that situation? Well, I, I was hoping that, it was going to stop. It's it's fifty fifty <laughs> chance. It's either over. It's I'm going to be all right. Well, I was okay because I was. Because I had gone around the side and gone in, my umbilical yeah, that's cleared. What, that's why I said the smart decision, or you thought wasn't the easiest, wasn't the easiest path, became out to be the smartest path that probably could have saved, yeah. might have saved your life. Well, well if, if I had it, gone, it, if good I had possibility gone straight in on the pipeline, yeah, uh, it, my umbilical would probably have been severed, pulled in two, or I would have been pulled in two, one or the other. It would oh, pull that's what I mean. You would have lost your life. Well, high, high probability. It wouldn't have been a good outcome. But I was lucky enough to where I'd gone around the side there. Maybe it was just intuition that told me to do that or something. But yeah, it pulled me across the bottom 150, 200 feet out there. And finally it stopped. And I pulled myself up, pulled myself up to the bell and uh, got up there and waltz. It's like a cat in the top of the bell. And I stick my head up and pull my helmet <laughs> off. He's screaming, what the hell is going on? I thought Damn. you were dead. I said, no, not yet. Looked like he was on the Gravitron, that carnival ride. It stuck was. to the wall. It was. I'm, That's I'm some crazy shit, I man. I was on that little ride. But anyway. Wild. Got a drink of water. We discussed what was happening and everything. I knew the anchors were dra had been dragging everything. We said, well. Did you fire off at the uh, Navy uh, supervisor? You just no, we roll with the punches. A, we had a discussion. We talked about continuing the job. And I said, yeah, let's go, let's go ahead and try to finish putting this anode on there. So I had drink of water, put my hat on, go back to work, and walk the barge back over there, you know, but this time I left the bell hanging where it should have been to start with, off to the side. Anyway, started lowering again on the, uh, on that anode, 
and son of a gun if it doesn't do it again. Mm. You know, same drill. Here we go, getting drug across the bottom out that direction. It goes about to where it stopped before and stopped again. I Nothing you can do but just just go with it. No, you got no, you got a, yeah, you got no. You got a three hundred foot marine. Just got to control your mindset and try to yeah think good thoughts. So after it did it the second time, I said that that's it. We're done, all done. You know. So oh jeez, man. It was yeah. very fortunate that uh, uh-huh. it ended well <laughs> for me as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh so a couple questions. Um, let's start. Let's fire them off here. Uh, favorite place, well, best dive you've done. Your favorite dive out of all the dives you did overseas working. Best run, best crew, best company, obviously Taylor, you'd say, but what's your best dive you, you felt that you accomplished? Whether it is even, I won't touch on your deepest uh, dive or nothing, but your, be- what, your best run job, we had no issues, smooth as butter. Well, we had went we had, well, went to plan, as you'd say, yeah, probably in the conglomerate in the memory. There, there was a lot of uh, back in the day that uh, we were doing all of this. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of really good, uh, really good jobs. That uh, a lot of very, very enjoyable work. To big sense of satisfaction of what you're doing. Uh, not many people in the world that are doing this work and walking on the bottom of the sea in the North Sea or something. That's a, you look behind you and actually see your footprints. Equivalent to. I don't say equivalent, but if you look at, uh, you know, astronauts, you're an astronaut underwater, really. Well, it's interesting because uh, NASA uses uh, divers in Houston at the Neutrobuoyancy Lab to train the astronauts. They've got a full mock-up hmm. of the space station in this gigantic 40-foot Zero-gravity type yeah. training. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, it, 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 Zero-gravity. One of my favorite things was when you first drop out of the bell when the bell's about 20, 25 foot off bottom, you can actually, it's like flying. That'd be cool. You drop you enough slack where the loop of slack's going down to the bottom and then you just dive off the bell and you can just fly to the bottom, you know, because it's, it's, you know, you don't, you're not weighted. You don't need any weights on or anything. Yeah. Uh, you're heavy enough with the helmet, all that stuff. You just sink down. So you just, yeah. you can just glide to the bottom. Uh-huh. Well, that was always a lot of fun. Um, we had a lot of a lot of good dives. I remember one in particular. Uh, we were our this big submarine pipe alignment rig was set by you know these barges have gigantic cranes on them, humongous cranes, and they swing over the side and lower it down. You get on the, the bottom, you have to lower this down, set it on the pipeline. Uh, you can't damage the pipeline at all. You do that, you ding the pipeline, you're gone, you're done. So there's a lot of precision in the work involved, doing things right and correctly. We had one bell run that went ran. I was actually out of the bell in the water working over 14 hours. That's in my logbook. Damn. Uh, 14 to, hours straight. Yeah, yeah. I was I was past the point of exhaustion. Uh, Gee, you want to see that nowadays, would you? No, it's it's. Uh, they've limited everything nowadays. Used to be uh, when we would go over there in the North Sea, there was only a four month window uh, out of the year in the summer months where you actually can can work because of the weather. Uh, Hmm. Our bell runs, we always did at least an eight-hour bell run minimum, normally. Uh, going to saturation, we want to stay in there as long as possible. Yeah. How long is the longest you went to saturation for, for uh, a consistent period of I time? I think the longest one straight period was 102 days. Son of a gun. And we, we actually... 102 days. Yeah. How big is this uh, saturation unit? 
they're, they're how big we looking big. at they have a little yeah, bunks know, in there yep they're you know you got two bunks here two bunks here two bunks and two bunks couple books couple bunks yeah a toilet on one end of it uh, Damn. You want to be you get to, you get to, away from the toilet. You get to know if you can be around somebody pretty quickly and other divers, yeah. imagine. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's very, very tight, close quarters. Damn. Uh, a lot tighter. 102 like days. Closer than on the subs, actually. Almost three and a half months. Yeah. Yeah, we were working for um, uh, uh, Phillips Petroleum. Mm-hmm. That's who we were. And this was North Sea job? Yeah, this was yeah. all North Sea. And where we were working in the Norwegian sector of the North Sea, and uh, the operator there was uh, Phillips Petroleum. Mm-hmm. And they were very, very good to us. What year were we looking at? What year were we? Uh, all through the 70s. Later the 70s. 80s, yeah. Early 90s. Uh, and when we were shut down for weather, see, we were paid. We were paid a day rate just for being there. Then you're paid... If you're in saturation, you're paid your saturation bonus, and that's calculated per depth that you're at. So a lot of the companies would, as soon as they shut down dive operations, they want to start decompressing the divers. Yeah. Because it's costing them a lot of money to keep the divers at this depth. Phillips would always, and we we like this, you know, would hold us at our working depth, you know, Get paid. Unless the weather was so horrendous that it looks you get like paid it's and you're in sat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Once we start decompressing, you're losing money every foot that you assume. Oh, so there's a scale for every foot yeah. you're in, in, in sat that yeah. you get more money. Is and there's right? a psychological thing that occurs also. Once you get in there and you're in sat, you get you acclimated to it yeah. after the first couple of days. Uh, you want to be left alone. Uh-huh. Let's do our job. You know, if we're going to shut down for weather, don't start decompressing us. Because if we're going to start decompressing, and remember, it's a it's a 24-hour day of decompression plus a day for every 100 feet. So a 500-foot a, uh, saturation depth is going to be minimum six days of decompression. Minimum. Damn. So. And decompression now, the reason you got to decompress is because the bends. Yeah, because you're. If you don't, you'd, you'd kill. You'd, we're you'd saturated. Die. We're saturated at 14.7 PSI right now Pounds meaning that your body is saturated with all of the nitrogen and oxygen your tissues can hold right the minute let's say we were to increase the pressure in this room to whatever depth let's say 100 feet where your body's like a sponge and it's going to start uptaking more and more and more gas mm-hmm. until you reach equivalent equi- um, e- equilibrium at that depth and then you are saturated at that depth. Right, right. If you go deeper, your body's going to start uptaking say, more gas yeah. again. Yep, gotcha. So you have to eliminate this excess gas that's in your body as you come up very, very slowly. Yeah. If you explosive decompression is, uh, you take a Coke bottle and shake it up and pop yeah. the top. That's what, what happens, happens with your, yeah. yeah that, that's carbon dioxide gas that's in solution in that liquid, and it comes out of solution it turns back into a gas instantaneously. Same as your body would. If your you, body that's, would. A, that's a good explanation that's or right. analogy there. <laughs> that's wild. So if you come up, you know, that's why you have to decompress very, very, very slowly. Yeah. You don't want that gas to turn back into it's bubbles. Like turning that's that knob what, very slowly or that bottle cap off yeah. very slowly so you don't... When the gas turns back into a bubble someplace in your body, that's what's called the bends or decompression yeah. illness. Which can kill you. It can. Uh-huh. How about this, what I have in front of me right here now, this is something. 
a certificate of appreciation awarded to you to acknowledge the contribution in completing a successful record-setting dive on the 26th of October, 1982, to water depth of 1,200 feet. There's no typo there. 1,200 foot pop. What do, you, what, what do you got to say about that? Yeah, well. Now that's only a copy of it, so yeah. I hope you. It's around someplace. Yeah, but this right here, McDermott Incorporated Diving. That is something that I don't know many people would have. Well, Pretty impressive, probably huh? Not. Probably not. What you want to, can you touch on that? That's amazing. When they discovered oil in the North Sea, all of the companies or countries surrounding the North Sea, they divided it like a pie. And each country got a slice of the pie according to how much coastline they had on the North Sea. Mm -hmm. And where we were working was in the Norwegian sector primarily. Norway back at that time was a very poor nation. Yep. A very poor nation. Okay. And, uh, but they had, a, they had, rights to their portion of that North Sea oil, but they didn't have any access to it because on the west coast of Norway, there's a deep trench that runs along the coastline there. Mm -hmm. So the technology didn't exist at that time to, to cross that Norwegian trench with a pipeline, much less work on it with divers. Right. So we did a, a series of experimental dives, and that was the result of one of them right there. They had surveyed and they found that the shallowest part of the Norwegian trench where they could feasibly, feasibly lay a pipeline was about a, a, a thousand uh, feet of water depth. Mm -hmm. So the Norwegian government desperately wanted us to be have the capability to install this pipeline and repair it if it was damaged. Right. So we did a, a there was a series of experimental dives. And that was one of them right there where we proved the capability of the equipment uh, to support life at that depth and uh, for the humans, us, to actually work at that depth mm -hmm. and, and conduct the work necessary for the installation and the possible repair of this pipeline. We did it. It was successful. And that pipeline to today is still has North, North Sea oil being pumped into Norway which has made Norway an extremely wealthy nation. Right. And it was due Imagine. to American divers and American diving technology and seamanship of the, of the men that operated the vessels and everything above us that made that possible. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations on that. That's well done. And I, uh, that's an achievement. That was Hell a of an achievement. letter right there that they gave us. Yes. Yeah, Read this. Dear Mr. Prescott, the certificate, this certificate is being presented to you for your contribution to commemorate McDermott's first successful 1,200-foot dive in Harvey, Louisiana, utilizing NS-TSS-07 total saturation system. I'd like to extend my own personal thanks and congratulations on the job well done. It's men as such as yourself that McDermott point to with pride and will keep McDermott number one. Once again, well done. Sincerely, Bill Ledford. Who was Bill Ledford? Bill Ledford was uh, uh, in charge of diving operations for McDermott International. So that was wow. that was nice of them. Top of the class. To uh, give us a little bit of a recognition for oh yeah, what we yeah did. that's and something that's an achievement there. Um, 
So diving into, I uh, won't go into it, but I was born and you took a, took a sidestep into commercial fishing. Well, what happened was that uh, with this hyperbaric welding work, the companies, it was extremely lucrative work for the companies. Mm -hmm. And we pioneered it with Taylor. And we were the first ones to successfully be able to do these hyperbaric welds. And uh, there was a lot of this work that, that was uh, coming up. So the other dive companies around the world started jumping into it. Right. And the problem they had was they didn't have enough divers that had the welding skills and certifications necessary to do the work. Huh. So they started going after us and luring us, and, and finally I succumbed and jumped, jumped ship from Taylor. And basically, we were just hired mercenaries. More, luc more lucrative uh, Yeah, they were, yeah, there was opportunity. a lot of big, big offers made to us. Yeah. And, uh, that money back then, won't discuss details, but it was damn good money. Yeah, you'd expect for what you're putting yeah. your life on the line. Yeah. Risking uh, that, risking everything to go and do that work. So you'd expect to be compensated, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. overly yeah. compensated. I would expect, you know, you'd yeah. expect, but, uh, so what had happened, uh, I had, I had, uh, I was working for other companies. I'd gotten away from Taylor and, uh, working with a lot of foreign divers, foreign dive supervisors. And, uh, there were a lot of things that uh, were happening that wouldn't have been happening with Taylor. Hmm. Rogue, <clears throat> you had you had uh, showed up. Look and, out! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and finally, I made the decision that uh, uh, I've done this long enough, and I'm going to make a change and mm -hmm. be home. Because you were away quite a bit with, I remember mom and all, and you were mm -hmm. you were you're away quite a bit of the year and yeah. different parts of the world diving and yeah yeah so so I switched gears and uh, you know in the, in the off time you know we had a boat and was out here fishing and diving lobster and stuff off of Daytona and I saw what was going on in the in the fishing business and I said you know what I can do pretty well in that and be home so. Mm -hmm. That's the next direction I took. And Commercial fishing, mm -hmm. kingfish, mm -hmm. Spanish mackerel. Yep. You caught a. Uh, you went to shark fishing for a little while, and you caught a great white off yeah. off New Smyrna here in Florida. Yeah. What year was that? I was eighty nine, eighty seven. I got the newspaper clipping. I think. I but what year that actually was? We it was probably a, had caught quite a few of them and didn't know it. Right. Um, Not made it to the boat. Yeah. But uh, that great white's hanging up in a friend of mine, Jimmy Hall's seafood restaurant, Norma Beach, right now. Yeah, uh, taxidermy got it stuffed and hung up. Mm -hmm. What um that was a small one. It was a two year old adolescent shark, three hundred and sixty yep. pounds. Right. Yeah. Three hundred and sixty. You look pounds. at those animals, how God designed their, their body, they're like a torpedo. They're built for speed. Yeah, yeah. you don't see them coming. People I've surfed my whole they're, life as you know, and they speed don't show and whenever up. they get to wherever they're going, they're gonna be eating something. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're hungry. They're, they're a no-nonsense animal. They're a killing machine. That's what they're designed to do. Predatory. Get someplace and eat something. Yeah. Doesn't matter how big it is. Yeah. Just don't want to be around when they're hungry. <laughs> so we'll go through that. What now, jump in a little bit further ahead, you got back into diving and you went over off China, was it? Remember you blew your eardrum a few years back? Yeah. As a dive supervisor? Yeah. I'd got back into the, the instructing side now mm -hmm. and... 
touch on that. Well, I'd, I'd gotten back into diving um, after the, the our government regulated the American commercial fishing business unnecessarily out of business, by and large. Mm -hmm. I had uh, gotten back into diving, doing uh, dive supervisory work on commercial dive jobs around the world. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'd gone over, there was a major offshore um, installation over there that uh, <clears throat> had been hit by a, a ship and had some cracks in it, and we went over there and repaired it. What was it, a, yeah. uh, what was the repair on again? It was, it was a, a, it was an offshore. Platform? Yeah, it was an offshore platform, uh -huh. and the, the uh, two of the four legs had some pretty significant cracks in them that okay. had been incurred from a uh, ship going into it. We went over there and repaired it. And that was your last kind of when you put this you put the suit and the helmet back on. You got yeah, in there, well, got off had, the side of that thing, and went we back had, down underwater, right? We had twenty four divers on the job, twelve on each on twelve on the day shift, twelve on the night shift, and we're diving back to back to back to back dives day and night. Mm -hmm. And had gone through all of, all twelve of my divers and still had two hours left on the shift, and and I need we needed to make another dive, so. Who steps up? Sid Prescott, look out. We'll, we'll do it. Legend himself. So we're working on a um, the largest offshore crane barge in the world. It had an 8,000-ton crane on it, and it was 50 feet from the water up to the deck. This quickly, this was how many years ago now? Six, seven years ago? About seven. Eight? Seven. Seven, yeah. eight years ago. Okay, so we're looking about 2015. Yeah. All right. So anyway, I get suited up. First time I've been in the water in a pretty long time. And uh, say. I'm getting jabbed by the guys around me, you know, they're, they're gigging me about how it's taking me so long and all this stuff. That's fair. So we had a stage because it's a 50 foot drop to the water, you know, and, and my guys that were diving, these guys have been diving every day, you know, every shift they're yeah. doing a dive. So their ears are, are limbered up. What's your average age on there as far as a diver would be young as what, uh, Probably late twenties. That's your early average. Thirties. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you're you can. There's no limit. There's no age limit. What well, your only limitation is, you have to pass an annual dive physical physical every year. Uh -huh. And you know, I could pass a dive physical right now. Yeah. So let's go to work. <laughs> uh, Talk about work. Well, you got you know premier dive school pretty much. Recognized worldwide. Mm -hmm. The dive school is doing extremely well, taking on a life of its own now. You and Ken Shelley now. That's mm -hmm. we talk about that. Be mm -hmm. I'm interested to yeah it's, let everybody it's, know how that that's going and how that started. Well, Grassroots. You got that going with with Ken and you and Ken both have accomplished a hell of a feat in the short period of time that it's been up and running. Yeah, well, we built everything there from scratch. Hudson, uh, Florida. Designed everything, built everything. 95% uh, of what's on that property uh, we built. Now this is a, a spring-fed pond, correct? <clears throat> yeah, it's 250 feet deep, right on the side of Highway 19. In right Hudson, Florida, on the, on the Gulf side of Florida. Right, which is about 40 miles north of Tampa. Mm-hmm. And it's an ideal location because we are, we are accredited, and uh, through our accreditation training protocols that we have to adhere to, uh, we do a series of dives with students getting deeper, 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 deeper down to a maximum of 165 feet on air. That's the maximum that we, we train to. 
How deep is the the hole, the pond? Two hundred fifty feet. And it wasn't when you first started because you were. Yeah, it was that max depth when we first started. I thought you were. Um, well, the opening was very very openings. small that went down. Yeah. There was a very small opening that went down. Actually, it went on an angle, and once you passed about one hundred thirty-five feet, it opened and you went past a ceiling. Like a cathedral and it type a gigantic deal. cavern. With cavern. The bottom yeah. being about two hundred fifty feet. Damn. Yeah. Some people in the past did cave dives and crazy yeah. stuff, and now that's just yeah. wild. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that this 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 school is called Commercial Diving Technologies. Yep. Put a link in there for that. That's a mm-hmm. and how many what. So what do you train these? Uh, they they graduate your school and they're ready for work in commercial diving. Is that correct? Yes, they are. And yeah, now you do a per, you're very skilled and your expertise is in the welding side mm-hmm. of commercial diving. Yeah. So you teach a class within the school. Right. And and, and teach welding. Yeah. Well, our we underwater we, welding. We offer two certifications. One is an international certification where if they earn this international certification, they can go anywhere in the world. Any Work of the anywhere. foreign companies right. recognize our cert- international certification. The other certification is a United States-based certification. Okay. Where any U.S.-based dive company uh, recognizes the certification, and that qualifies them for employment at an entry level. And we do a comprehensive. Um, it's about a three-month class um, that covers everything from all your dive physics, your gas laws, dive medicine, treatment tables, decompression schedules. Hyperbaric uh, chamber. Hyperbaric chamber operations. That's for the bends. Fundamental yeah. basic um, knowledge, yes. And we focus on, we do the first two weeks, we front-load classroom work. Mm-hmm. Once we get through all of that, then they're out on the dive station every single day starting at 0700 in the morning to 4 p.m. in the afternoon, take about an hour lunch, but they're diving, they're in the water. This three-month three month yes. course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, So we we really put a lot of emphasis on in-water, we call it bottom time. Mm-hmm. We want them to leave our training facility with as much in-water working time as possible. So. Wow. It gets them ready when they're out on a job and it comes their time to do a dive, you know, and they're told, okay, you're going to make the next dive. Go get suited up. They don't have the deer in the headlight looks because right. they have that muscle memory having well, done it so many times. It's a, it's a no bullshit job and you got to be tough to do it. And it ain't you just going and you're putting fries down in a fryer. It's it's no joke. It's it's no joke, but yeah. it's it's good. It's good work. Right. Very satisfying to be. It's able good. To go it can this. be lucrative. Uh, very good paying job. Career. Yeah. I don't call it a job. Just yeah. a job. It's a career path if you got the mindset. Right. And you throw me in there. I stay on the top of the water. <laughs> on my yeah. surfboard. I don't know about going under it. Yeah, I don't mind it, going under it, but it was. In, it's interesting. I just. I got a lot of admiration for you for having that mental state to be able to, and, and that toughness to, to do that for years, and especially back in the cowboy days when there was not nearly as much safety as that's, that's around it today. Well, when I, when I got into it, and again, you remember the reason that I originally got into it and uh, then got sidetracked from that reason. Yeah. But uh, those early days were the golden days of, of commercial diving mm-hmm. in the world, worldwide. And uh, I was just fortunate to be part of it. Is it saturated now with uh, a lot of, would you say it's saturated with uh, people getting into it that are trying to dive 
and try to get the, get into that career path? Or is there a shortage of divers? Is there a shortage of skilled divers? Well, there, there's most definitely a shortage of experience. Experienced, divers. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that are actually going to inferior places to get training. It's, probably it's rush advanced it through. from uh, when we started the early days of saturation diving. It was entirely really experimental because hmm. nobody had done it before. Yeah. And here we are doing it on, a, oh, yeah. on an everyday basis, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was all pioneering work, all of the decompression schedules. Uh, there was just a accident over in Australia. This, this shouldn't happen in, in today's time, but uh, they put uh, some guys in saturation and they compressed them very, very rapidly. Yeah. And it's caused some very serious neurological problems with them. Damn. Uh, that could be... That's uh, off Australia. So recently off Australia. Yeah, it was about two years ago in Australia. So there's obviously a calculation, a rate that you can yeah. compress and decompress, correct? Yes, most definitely. It's not just your decompression rate yeah. that's uh, extremely important, but it's also the actual compression rate. When we did the 1,200 foot dive, uh, we took four days to reach 1,200 foot. And we were Shit. we were being compressed only during daylight hours. We would all stop, you know. How long was the decompression on that dive? What was the decompress? How many days on the decompress? Fourteen days. So it's quicker to compress than to decompress. Yeah, you can compress right. quicker, right? But you can't compress too fast, or otherwise it causes uh -huh. some really serious neurological issues. Damn. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's. So these these fellas are not in good shape. They've got some serious problems. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's well known that you don't compress rapidly to those deep, deeper depths. Well, then anyway, there's a lot of uh, yeah. accountability, duty of cares. Yeah. Just a, a matter of interest, the uh, breathing mixture on the 1,200-foot dive we did was 0.3% O2. The rest was pure helium. Wow. So there's no margin for error when, you're, when your O2 is 0.3%. There is no margin for error there. Nothing. No, not at all. No, it, it, it has to be exactly that because that 0.3% translates out to I could do the math on the partial pressure table but it's about an 11% or maybe a little more surface equivalent uh, you don't want to do a 21% surface equivalent because you would die of O2 toxicity so you maintain just enough O2 partial pressure to maintain life and metabolism you don't want any more you can't have any less right right but it's got to be spot depths, on at the deeper depths that that uh, that that area that window gets narrow and narrow yeah. and narrow until you're down to 0.3 percent O2. There's no margin. What's the deepest? Uh, <clears throat> what's Mariana Trench the deepest in part of the ocean? That's probably 38,000. That's feet. almost like Everest upside down. I think Mount Everest yeah. upside down. It's, yeah. it's yeah, extremely about yeah. the deepest point in the ocean. Well, I'll tell you this, um, just because we're discussing this, and it, it may be of some interest, you know, when we were at 1,200 feet, uh, let's, okay, we're in this room here right now, the pressure is 14.7 PSI, and what makes that pressure are molecules. There's oxygen molecules, there's, there's nitrogen molecules in this room, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, once we start increasing the pressure, what we're doing, we're putting more molecules in here. Well, at 1,200 feet inside the living chamber, there's so many molecules pressed in there to create that pressure mm -hmm. that sound doesn't travel through it. 
and we learn just like you and I talking Your right now. Your mouth's moving, but you ain't hearing nothing. Well, you can hear this garbly noise, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's unintelligible. Sounds like learn, the teacher in We learn in, uh, to like look at your lips and try to lip read what you're saying. Yeah, and, right. Wow. Uh, we we started playing with tinfoil. They would send the food in on a tray covered with tinfoil. Yeah. And of course, we take the tinfoil up, we ball it up, and sitting in the in the in the chamber, you know, there's a trash can right over there. So we toss it over there, and it falls right at your feet. So once we saw that happening, then it became a game. We would ball this tinfoil up as, in like a, a tight little ball with some density and throw it as, I could throw it as hard as I could throw it and it wouldn't go three feet. It just goes, wow. because it won't go through the molecules. So, There's so, so many molecules in dense, there. Yeah, compacted, yeah. tight together, yeah. There was a yeah, three man. degree temperature that had to be maintained in the chamber. You know, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I know it was three degrees, 84, 85, and 86, I mm. think. And if you went above 86 degrees, we were getting uncomfortably uncomfortably warm. If it went below 84... Notice that slight change. You were getting, you were getting cold. Two degrees. Yeah, there was a three-degree band of temperature. It had to be maintained. Damn. You know, above and beyond it, you were above or below it, you were uncomfortable. Um you felt like you're. I I started really feeling the changes uh, when we passed 700 feet. <laughs> we were passing 700 feet. Uh, everything above that was pretty normal. What I was used to with most all the saturation dives I'd done, but uh, beyond 700 foot and beyond, I started feeling a lot of. Uh, uh, you don't want to move your your hands or your arms very fast. You do very calculated moves. Pain in your joints feet. and things. Was it real? Just tightness or there was. Not any real pain, pain or anything no. like that. Body pains, stiffness. I don't recall any very much. But what I do recall is you had a sense of fragility. Your body, oh. you had a sense that your body's glass. Damn. And if you move like that, it's your just arm's shattered. just going to break. You just had this sense of fragility uh, because wow. of the immense amount of pressure that's on your body. Good lord. Uh, and I'll tell you something else that. Uh, as far as human beings working in the open sea at those depths, yeah. they don't build dive, uh, saturation chambers anymore beyond that are rated over a thousand feet. That's too much on the body. It, it is uh, very, it's just not practical. Right. There's too many problems. Uh, these helmets, for instance, <clears throat> this has a demand regulator and yeah, free see. flow. And, you know, once Kirby you get, Morgan, this is out of California? Yeah. Yeah. The manufacturer? Right. Okay. Well, once you get extreme to the extreme depths, you run into all kind of problems with the equipment being actually the, to, for this to be, you see the size of this tube, uh -huh. this regulator, the, the design, uh, they have to be completely redesigned to flow the gas to, for the diver to be able to get enough gas just to breathe. Jeez. So, and then you're talking about all of the equipment all the way back up you know, to the surface that's going to be supplying the gas, the hot water, and everything. Hmm. Hell of a hell of a career, Pops. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here to chat about this. I know through the years, my ears were clogged a lot with worried about going surfing, but as I've gotten older, I've just learned to be appreciative of having you as a father, for one, and for you know, another is just your story and your accomplishments. Got some big shoes to fill, but uh, you've had some 
Got a hell of a career over the years. What's the plan for Sid Prescott? Because you don't look like you're retiring. <laughs> I, don't I don't think retirement's in the cards. Uh, Still going, going thing, strong. I've, I've decided to, uh, we've got a country we've got to save right now. I hear and, you're running uh, for Congress, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, you heard right. I'm running for the United States Congress in the Florida's 12th Congressional District. That's great. And uh, this is, I uh, made this decision about three months ago now. Where can people uh, go to check out your, your, uh, Campaign website is Prescott for F O R Congress dot com. Altogether, no spaces. Prescott for Congress dot com. Check it out, everybody. Uh, support my my father here. Glad everybody listened to his story. Tune in into Prime Movers. It's a hell of a story, and proud to be his son. And uh, guess he ain't retiring, but I'm. Glad to have you on, Pops. Well, I appreciate that, and it's an honor to me that that you allowed me to come on and chat a little hey, bit. About honor's all mine, you know. I was uh, just I have thankful to, say, to have you on. I have to say that I've been blessed with you as a son. I'm <laughs> hey. extremely proud of you for everything you've done in your life. Been places, done things that I um, only dreamed about. So, hey, proud of you. Feelings mutual. So, thanks for coming on, Pops, and. Uh, Telling your story. Okay. It's amazing. And everybody go check out, uh, if you're interested in a commercial diving career, go see my, my old man here and his partner, Ken Shelley, started that started this diving school, Commercial Diving Technologies. Um, give us a follow, Prime Movers Official on Instagram, uh, primemoverspodcast.com, and all the other platforms out there. Uh, links will be put into this episode. And thanks for tuning in. Appreciate your time.